Everybody, welcome to the For the Love podcast. It is me, Jen, and I am really happy that you're here today. I'm really happy that you clicked download on this one. A couple of weeks ago, I had a really profound and important conversation on Facebook Live with my incredible friend, Lisa Sharon Harper, who is just an activist, a civil rights champion. Um, She has had her hand at the work of racial equality and repentance and reconciliation for decades. I mean, she is truly special and important. Her voice is needed right now. And so I am so happy that you are listening to it. I invite you to listen to this bonus release today on the podcast where we grabbed that conversation and uploaded it over here for you so that you could hear it easily, so that you could hear it again, so that you could share it, um, so that you could send it to your friends and family, um, because this one really packed a punch, you guys, in a good way. This is an important conversation to have. And so um, Lisa leads us well, and she and I discuss essentially what has been the long history of the weaponization of white women's tears and emotional fragility and how deeply it has not only crippled the work of equality, um, but has caused innumerable harms to black men, women, and children. And so this is, this is big, uh, buckle up today. And I say this somewhere in the conversation, but for my white listeners, I invite you to set aside your preconceived ideas or your defensiveness and even your shame and just listen quietly today. Listen to what you hear. Um, Listen to the history. Listen to the stories. Listen to the examples. And let's learn together. Let's lean into this work. Um, It's such a moment in time. We are in an incredible worldwide moment. And I'm so happy that you're joining and I'm so happy that you're here. And once again, I am delighted to bring to the show the incredible Lisa Sharon Harper. And listen, after you hear this conversation between the two of us, go follow her everywhere. Go listen to everything she has to say. Um, Go to her website, look at her her organization. Um, She is such an important and a worthy leader to follow right now. So thank you for being here. Share this episode, share this, send it to your folks. This one's worth listening to. Hello, America. Hello, everybody. And Jen is now putting on her makeup. (laughs) Thank you so, so much for uh, for coming and being a part of this conversation again. We had a, an amazing conversation just a few days ago on Friday of last week um, about uh, white women's toxic tears. And what were we referring to there? We were referring to the incident that happened in, in Central Park in New York City um, with Amy Cooper and Mr. Christopher Cooper. Um, and also that happened on the same day that the video came to us on the same day as that we watched um, the public lynching of Mr. George Floyd. So my name is Lisa Sharon Harper, and I'm here in conversation with Jen Hatmaker about white women's toxic tears. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a a take two because, well, unfortunately, (laughs) we had demons last week, okay? Can I just tell you? Oh, my God. Honestly. 
So we actually have some friends who are helping us out today. Yeah. Um, they, they, they look, they watch themselves and they were like, oh, these girls need help. And so they, they called them. and they said, can we help you guys? So yeah. Red Wine and Blue is an amazing new organization that actually does this kind of thing. And they've offered their help. They're donating their help in order to, yeah, to service the nation actually with this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, why are we having this conversation as opposed to others right now? Well, for me, this is really critical because I see the reality that um, in order for us to have lasting change in our nation, which is what we want, we right. are at the place where we have had 75 cities experience uprisings over the last six days. We are now in the seventh day. Yeah. And there has been no ceasefire declared. And the only thing that people are asking for is justice. Right. We did get, um, we got charges last week, but the charges were lower than the actual, what the videotape says, um, shows us that happened. Um, and, and the reality is, is that in most cases, what you find is you, you find um, DAs do not have to prove the entire case before they bring charges they proved the case in court, That's right. but they, they lowered the charges based on what they thought they could prove, but they didn't actually say what they thought happened. Mm. And that's all people are asking for, that's right. is for what happened to be stated in the courtroom and mm. then prove the, pay, prove the case. That's right. So we are here talking about the role of white women in this whole experience mm. of the subjugation of black uh, men, women, and mm. children. And why white women? Well, because of Amy Cooper, girls. Amy Cooper showed us in base relief um, mm. what what we have, ex- what people of African descent have experienced for literally four centuries. Four centuries, but she clarified it. So we want to dig into this. We want to examine it, and we want to actually begin to mine this so that we can never have this happen again. Mm. Never mm. again. Mm. Okay. So Jen Hatmaker. Um, on a week ago, right? A week ago, we watched the public lynching of of Mr. George Floyd at the hands of Officer Derek Chauvin. And by all accounts, Mr. Floyd was a generous man. Um, He was a loving soul, known and respected by all and known by Mr. Chauvin. They worked at the same uh, nightclub for years. And at the same, and, and at the same time in New York City, this white woman, Amy Cooper, unleashed her dog in Central Park in an area where unleashing was illegal, right. prohibited. And this avid bird washer, um, board member of the Audubon Society and Harvard grad, Christopher Cooper, black man, asked mm-hmm. Amy to leash her dog, right. at which point she got indignant. And he didn't want the, the environment to be ruined she did not want to leash her dog. So he took out his phone to videotape the conversation and thank God he did. Hmm. She came toward him and she said, please, he said, please don't um, get close to me. Don't come close to me. And then she backed away a little bit Hmm. and whipped out her phone and called the police. And as she dialed, she told him, I'm going to tell them that there's an African-American man threatening my life. Mm. And that is exactly what she did. He was 20 feet from her 
as she repeated again and again in hysterics, there's an African-American man threatening my life. I'm in Central Park. Come and help me. Come and help me. Jen, I want to know what was your very first response? What was your first thought when, when you saw that on the video? It was so upsetting. And my absolute first thought, I mean, on contact of seeing that video was, oh, she is going to get him killed. Mm. She is going to get him killed yeah. by police. And she's lying. Um, her life was not in danger. There was not a shred of truth in her claim. Not one shred. Mm -hmm. not, not, not in any way, shape, or form. It could not have been perceived. It could not have been misinterpreted. It was a lie. And the the ease in which she was prepared to weaponize her white victimhood, her white tears, her white fear against an utterly innocent black man was chilling. I mean, it was absolutely chilling to me. And it is, I mean, it is a mercy that that de-escalated and disbanded before the police got there because they would have believed her. They would have believed her. And that's what we're here to talk about today is this, it's a, it's a weapon and it could have ended his life. It was, yeah. it was horrifying to watch. So down deep, was there, was there, like, what was the feeling? Like you said, it was horrifying. I get that. But was there, were there like, name a feeling that came up for you? The feeling that I felt, which makes me so mad is that this is predictable. I'm like, this is a predictable response. Mm -hmm. And, and when, when she was not getting the results she wanted immediately, she resulted to tears and hysterics yes! um, and fear. Did you see her? She flipped it. Like, yes! well, let me, let me, let me double down on my fragility, on my emotional state. It is very performative. And let me see if that will secure the outcome I want. And I was angry. And I was, I was sad. I was angry and I was sad. What did you feel? That's a good question. I mean, I think here's the thing is that I felt, well, first of all, my first thought was Emmett Till. Mm. That was my first thought. Right. My first right. thought was Emmett Till, right? And, and so what that led me to do is honestly to feel terrified mm. because when she did that, it was literally like she was, conjuring 1955 yes you know 1955 that was the year after the passage of the brown versus the board of education hmm. right so brown versus the board of education is that moment in time when we finally get the constitutional uh protection of uh of our lives it's when it when we are, we're told separate but not equal is not is not constitutional right. and people of African descent and all people and all citizens, all residents have equal protection of the law. Right. So the response to that um, by the originators, hello, somebody of the culture wars mm -hmm. was to go and just eradicate and they eradicated Emmett Till one year later That's and true. Emmett Till. And let me tell you a little bit about Emmett Till. So Emmett Till 1955, for those who don't know, he was 14 years old visiting his uncle um, down in Mississippi, and um, he was lynched. He was not just lynched as in strung up, although that's bad enough, 
but he was eradicated as Tim Tyson, author of The Blood of Emmett Till says, they they brutalized him. They beat him yeah. to a pulp. They wrapped him in razor wire. They, they stripped yeah. him naked and then wrapped him and then, um, and then threw him off the side of the Tallahatchie Bridge, right? And that was a message. It was a message that Brown versus the Board of Education does not apply to you. That's right. Um, it does not apply. It is, or in other words, it is, it is irrelevant as far as we are concerned. Mm-hmm. But see that the history of this goes back. It goes back even further than Emmett Till. Emmett Till was just a warning, right? Don't try. Mm-hmm. Don't even try to be protected by the law, by law enforcement. Hello, somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it goes back to slave patrols. Mm-hmm. It goes back, literally, the policing in America goes back. The seed of the tree that is bearing this fruit right now was slave patrols. So the, literally what they did was they, they inscripted um, uh, in the midst of about a thousand, more than a thousand uprisings that happened on plantations throughout the South. They inscripted um, slave plantation owners, the plantation owners and overseers to patrol the area like a volunteer posse in the evenings in order to make sure that black people could not have freedom of movement and that nobody was coming to kill Missy right in the middle of the night or rape Missy in the middle of the night. And so only white women um, in the midst of this at this time could legally declare that they had been raped in the antebellum South, but there was no protection for black women who were often raped by their masters. And according to um, the American Bar Association report that I read of 19, not 19, last year, 2019, they said that oftentimes women were raped by their masters in front of the master's family. <laughs> I'm like what? So you have you have the rebellions, you have the 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 posse's that are coming because, or the the slave patrols, and the slave patrols are explicitly to hunt down and uh, and prohibit the movement of black men, women, and children. Yeah. And then you have the thing is the rape of white women by black men mm-hmm. was codified into law as deserving of a death sentence then in those days. So these are the seeds. These are the seeds of what we are experiencing in our society right now. And the slave patrols were literally the precursor of the current day police. So if you look at the old slave patrol badge, they had a badge. It was the actual star that we now have as our sheriff's badge. It's the same star. This literally, when I I was researching and I saw this, this blew my mind. In the Jim Crow era, you have more than 4,000 Black men, women, and children then that are lynched, usually on the word of a white woman That's who right. pointed her finger, who That's pointed right. her finger and said, he raped me, or he, yeah. he winked at me, or he looked at me, and that yeah. Black man, woman, or child, like yeah. Emmett Hill, would be dead. Hmm. And now, the accusation of rape, um, it, it justifies uh, inordinate sentences. Um, Black man is 20% 20 more likely to to be convicted of rape. Um, They're lots times more likely to have longer sentences and um, exponentially more more, uh, likely to be wrongfully convicted. That's right. So think about that. So Jen, what I want to know, knowing all of this, knowing that that is the seed of the tree, right? That's the seed of the tree that we now have called policing and law enforcement. And 
It is the history of white women pointing the finger and the reality that that tree exists largely um, dependent on white women pointing the finger. How does this happen? How are white women conditioned to use their tears in order to gain that power? Yes. Thank you, first of all, Lisa, for tracing this back because it is an unbroken chain. Yeah. Um, it, it's not a disconnected thread. It's run the whole course of history mm-hmm. and it doesn't even take a lot of um, effort or energy to discover that. It's not some hidden mystery that is unknowable. It's just that we erased that from our history books. We erased that from our classrooms. And so thank you for just doing the most obvious work of explaining sort of how this came to be. And I wanna say this first before I answer your really important question. Mm -hmm. Um, I know like on my channels for sure today, a great majority of you listening are are white women and we're talking about us. And um, I want to, I I wanna challenge you today as your sister um, that for some of you, this will be, some of the first time that maybe you've heard some of the things we're going to talk about. And our instinct is sometimes to be incredibly defensive Mm -hmm. and incredibly ashamed. And Mm -hmm. that comes out with all kinds of sideways energy. And, and I, I want to challenge us today to set that aside, to set those reactions aside and choose humility today that we can and should just simply be listeners and learners. And that's an appropriate position. And um, to hear, just to hear, 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 hear. Um, and without a response, just let this, let this be. See if that it can be a posture that we can take inside this, this conversation. Because Lisa has just asked a really important question, which is how are and have been um, white women socialized to use their tears and their victimhood and their I would call it learned helplessness in order to gain power. And this matters. This really, really matters. Just like Lisa just traced this back to root origin sources, we can do the same thing because there is definitely an MO of this behavior that's been around for a really, really, really long time. Um, And so as if we're committed to the work of anti-racism, this is where we start. We look backward first. And so um, this original let's just call it damsel in distress persona, um, if you will, was a way originally for white women to exercise whatever limited power we had, which wasn't much. Um, still, we white women have always been embedded in white patriarchy. So that's, that's, right. that's also true. However, that's- yeah, it's important because it very much informs the conversation. We had a little bit of power and our power was primarily exercised through sex and tears. Those were our tools. Those were our tools at our disposal. And so um, the damsel, I'm just going to call her the damsel for short, ensured that even inside incredibly violent and abusive scenarios that white women were at least um, considered human 
although still very much dependent on the men to defend them and assign any amount of honor or respect to them whatsoever. That was still out of their control. Um, and so white women needed to be seen as worth protecting that, mm -hmm. um, that that was some sort of noble cause, if you will. Um, and also this matters too, if we're going to look backwards at history, um, which was also that protecting white women from abusive black men, right? Or black men who would exploit them was the only way at the time also to maintain a pure race. Um, you know what, right? Jen, yeah. real quick, can, I, can I interject here? Cause this is actually yep. important. Yep. So, and this was not, we did, I didn't plan to talk about this but it actually does connect. So in my research for my next book, Fortune, I traced my family back to like 1660, 1662, 1667. Mm. And it was right around that same time, sorry, 82, 87. Mm -hmm. um, it was right around that same time that, that the first race laws were created in America, Virginia mm. and Maryland. Yeah. And then Maryland in particular, they were the first two colonies ever, right? Like first two colonies. And the first laws were actually created in response to white women, a flood of white women having either affairs yeah. or marrying enslaved black men. Yeah. I mean, choosing to marry them. Sure. And and there were a lot. There were there were 600 mixed race children that were birthed in Maryland alone, just in the colonial era. And so the legislators mm -hmm. created the race laws in order to stop that. Totally. In order to stop it, they said, oh, we can't have this. That's right. So it's funny because it wasn't actually at first the impetus of white women to think that black men were brutes and, and trying to, they were trying to marry them. That's right. But black, white men were threatened by that and said, oh, hell no. You know what I mean? That's right. <laughs> That's going. right. That's important too, because mm -hmm. you probably know the details because your mind is a, you have a steel trap mind for history and dates, but interracial marriages were illegal as recently as, is it maybe 50 years ago? Am I getting that a little bit wrong? No, no, no. It's, it's 1967 with yeah. Lovey Virginia. Hello, yeah. somebody. And guess what? That it was, it was from 1967. If you trace back the very first race laws in America, were the time when they made misogynization of the races illegal. So mm -hmm. it was from 1660 to 1967 that it was illegal in America. Totally. And so obviously, like there was this um, impulse to protect white superiority, you know, self-proclaimed. Um, and white power and white hierarchy by keeping white women to the white men. So, I mean, there was a clear mm -hmm. point, but I think this is really important for women to notice, for us mm -hmm. to look backwards with clear eyes and no pay attention that the damsel performance of helplessness and distress um, and fragility um, and victimhood has never and did never work against the abuses of white men, right? So let's keep it straight. It didn't protect women from being raped and exploited and abused by white men at all. That's so it's right. not actually the protection of white women that was at stake. That's that right. was an excuse. That was a front to, That's right. to protect you know, white male right. power. 
just went, did you know that it was the very last state to outlaw rape in the, in, in the context of marriage was, I believe it was North, North or South Dakota in 1995. Well, so let's yeah. get it straight. Mm -hmm. Let's get it straight. It mm -hmm. wasn't an altruistic, sincere desire to keep white women from harm. It never was. Mm -hmm. It was a tool in the bag of white supremacy. Um, and so that's kind of where it came from. This where this narrative really grew roots and, and then blossomed, as Lisa said earlier. But I think what's um, as important to our discussion today is that this persona, the damsel is still in play. Clearly, it's been one week since we saw it on every single news channel. The damsel is still in play because it has some benefits and it has well, a goal. Okay. Let's talk about the benefits. Let's talk about those benefits. Why Let's do they talk do about that? What do they get from it? <sighs> okay. Again, let's just receive this with open hands. All these quite tearful um, denials and indignance at our good character called into question, right? Like, how dare you? Um, what that does is it, it keeps our innocence intact. So what I mean by that is it has this knee-jerk trigger response to, um, it will muster sympathy, first of all, which is what we're trying to get. We want to get on the right side of things really quickly as the victim, not the perpetrator. Um, so mm -hmm. it musters sympathy as quickly as our tears can secure it. Mm -hmm. And then also it helps us avoid accountability because here's the truth. Our, our hurt damsel feelings will always be prioritized over black outrage or black conflict or even just plain old ordinary truth telling by the black community, just yeah. calling a fact a fact, saying what yeah. it is on its face. And black life. Black life. Black life. How many, I don't know how many times we have to see this. Yeah. Um, we have that trump card to play and it's our feelings. And so we have learned to center it in every encounter of, of white supremacy, knowing that it will be favored. It will, we, it will be assumed that our black innocent or that our white innocence and that our white perception and that our white fear is real and that it's true and that that's the honest experience of the moment. Um, and then of course that very much partners with the opposite assumption, which is that um, people of color, men specifically are to be feared and mistrusted and they're dangerous, right? That they, they work in tandem. And so here's the thing for us. The, this sort of emotional centering of our own hurt feelings, our own misguided perception of a moment, it, it helps maintain the narrative that we are incredibly virtuous. And that's how we want to be seen. Like white women want to be seen as virtuous and absolutely good that we are good to our core and how dare anybody suggest otherwise and how dare anybody suggest that we may have a lot of lingering inherent racism and bias because it's the air we've breathed since the day we were born on this earth, right? How dare, 
what about our character? What about our innocence? And so, of course, as I just mentioned, this very much partners with the narrative that Black women are very sexualized and very radicalized. I mean, wow, this is such a trope, wow. right? And that and that Black men are dangerous and violent. And so that's wow. how it, and it works. It's sure, very I've reliable. I, I've very reliable. I have never heard the coupling, the, the, I know I've understood the relationship to Black men. I have never heard, but it's true. The opposite is also true in terms of, so white women, well, first of all, whiteness is always, whiteness was created, whiteness as a political construct, right. right, was created in relationship to Blackness. It doesn't yeah, exist. You taught me that. Blackness. Yeah. <laughs> you, you taught me that. <laughs> it doesn't exist without it. And, and, but I've never heard, I've never heard that whiteness for white women is actually in, in direct, diametrically opposed, uh, in direct, uh, diametric yep. opposition to Black womanness. Ah, totally. Wow. It works like a charm. It works like a charm because our narrative is going to be assumed as the true one. And can can we also talk about this, Lisa? Because Ooh. let's just, I mean, let's just come to the table of like confession and then ultimately repentance because mm-hmm. our our tears and centering our emotions in any given um, moment, there's also an inherent advantage um to for white women because that response keeps the white men in power happy do you know what i mean like yes um yes i do so can i before you go on can i just add something to that real quick yes hold that thought hold that thought yeah. so going back to those first race laws so you know what the very first race law was? Like the very first race law in, in Maryland, I'll say, right? So in Maryland, that first race law was um, came into being in 1662. In 1662, the way that the white male legislators wanted to deal with this problem of white women marrying black men was to say, if a white woman marries or has an illegitimate child with a black man, well, actually, no, this was really just marriage. If, if they marry a white, a black man who's enslaved, she too will become a slave, enslaved by the owner of her husband's master until her husband dies. Yeah. And her children will become enslaved in perpetuity for wow. freaking ever, right? So, yeah. so what you have there is, yeah. as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, there is literally no motivation for white women to align with people of color That's at right. all. Because if they do, they lose, they literally, legally lose their whiteness. They Gosh. lose their whiteness. And if you don't have whiteness yeah. as a white woman, you don't have anything. You have nothing. Wow. You, you could, you might as well just be a slave. In fact, they tried to enslave you. That is so interesting. The history of that disincentivizing, because that's still very much at play in mm-hmm. our culture right now. When when we choose to be, when women, white women, choose to be offended by black sorrow and rage, rather than becoming an ally, right. let's just be honest. Be honest. What what happens is we are then afforded ancillary privilege because of that, which is what you just described. Like we get to keep our scraps from the table, right? We get, 
um, to maintain sort of this, that second place space in white culture, but it's better than no place. Mm -hmm. And so um, the truth is that the white damsel is very much still rewarded by white supremacy. It's just true. We, it, 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 it gives us power. It hands us position. And so I think we know that either consciously or subconsciously that when white women decide to become anti-racists and when they become allies to their brothers and sisters of color, they're going to upset the very power brokers that have kept them in the game. And so um, it's predictable. It's predictable. We see it. Um, and then just like that, um, what used to be sort of this trope of protecting us, um, we are on the other end of it now, called names, disparaged, diminished, um, discredited, um, just like that, just like, just like you said, pushed out. So there's, there's really no inherent loyalty inside of it. Let's be fair. It's really just keeping white supremacy and hierarchy and patriarchy intact. That's really what it's doing. And so, um, thus we have very much been conditioned in every way, both overtly and subtly, and just every single experience we've ever had since the day we were born, Mm -hmm. we have learned how to center ourselves in virtually every conversation and circumstance around racism. Um, And so here we are, here we are left with that. And I guess it's really ours to decide, ooh, that is a tough pill, but what am I gonna do with it? Then that's where we are today. What am I going to do with it? Yeah, what are we going to do with it? I mean, Jen, what what do you think? Like, here's the thing: I mean, we, we you look. <laughs> I love how you say, it. "Let's be real with this, right? Let's be yeah. real." We have 500 years of this history. Like, we, we have 400 years of race law in America that was directly related to gender. So, race yes. and gender in America don't exist without each other. Like, literally, the mm-hmm. very those very first race laws in America were also the very first laws that had to do with gender on this mm-hmm. soil, were created on this soil. So they're literally inextricably linked. This is mm-hmm. what we this is what we mean by intersectional mm-hmm. oppressions, right? So so when we are asking the question of what can white women do, yes, you know, what what comes to your mind? Um, okay. What does it look like for you to renounce yeah. the tactic, the tactic yeah. of trying to gain power Yes. At all times. Okay. 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 So maybe a first step toward women who are being confronted with this and trying to decide what to do with it is to pay attention to what contexts we are in where we have been socialized to use our tears for power. So let me, let me lay out a couple, which may be invisible to us because that's how white supremacy works to white people. Um, you know, it, we, we don't, we have the luxury of imagining it is a, it's a facade, um, or it is a, it's a construct of the imagination. And so let me put it down to the ground, like real terms. So here are some, some contexts in which white women have become very adept at using our emotions. Um, in, in like racial disparity and inequality, maybe first and foremost is in our corporate and in our business settings. Oh, please, 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 white ladies. Oh, you're, you're, I mean, this. You, when, when we talked about this on Friday, it literally hit me between the eyes because yeah. girl, you are getting, you're stepping, you're stepping a little too girl. close. Girl. Um, stepping a little too close here. Right, I mean, Lisa? Experience. Yes. I know. 
Yes. Uh, listen, everybody listening, please ask your black friends about their white coworkers' tears at the office. Please. Please ask them how many times a white coworker has gone to HR in tears after an ordinary business experience. And so rather than using maturity and conversational skills and compromise and, and adulthood to work out what would typically just be business, white people run straight to HR with the tears and they call black people, especially black women, aggressive, mean threatening ask please ask a black woman how many times she's been called on the carpet for her tone of voice right or oh how many Lord times she's God. lost a job she's lost a job on the word of white tears you are calling it out oh. it's true though right lisa like i'm not making it up no you're not you're not i can hear i can hear the black women just going ooh, like like we literally like gasping because you are reading yes. our book you're reading our yes. book and yes. you know what the thing is I actually get this. I understand why you could read our book because white women wrote it. White women wrote it. Perspective. Hello. It's worked for us mm -hmm. for all the years, and it continues to because white women are have believed the lie that they are so incredibly emotionally fragile mm -hmm. that rather than responding to any given moment with maturity, that they get the opportunity to resort to helplessness and victimhood. Um, and so it's a lie. Can That's I just be real quick? Like my, my assistant, uh, my assistant, her, she's fabulous, everybody. Her name is Katie, right? So Katie actually told me when we were having this conversation, she told me once she was literally trained, she was stopped by a cop, you know, the cop was going to give her a ticket. And the ticket was actually probably very legitimate, right? Mm -hmm. But this other guy reeled up to the car next to the car. Another man, a white man, reeled up next to her car and said, just cry. You'll get out of it. Totally. She was literally trained. Totally. Literally by a white man how to use her white tears. Every single white woman listening right now is nodding her head. We were 100% taught that. And we were right. And let me tell you, that does not work with black women. Oh, you're hysterical. Bland. Yes. Sandra Bland. That's right, Sandra Bland. That's we will say her name. It does not work. Um, and so the way that we weaponize our emotions in the workplace causes so much harm to our coworkers of color. And thus, um, if you'll listen to your black friends talk about how they police their own tone and their own facial expression and their own body language so as not to trigger our constant fragility in the workplace it's exhausting and it's enough here's another place um, where we've been socialized to use this when our white children have either harmed or displayed racism toward a child of color cue the tears mm. not my kid oh no oh he must have heard that from a neighbor right? Um, yeah. No, it's, he's a good boy. Like, rather than like face the music, um, that is the moment you can expect to watch a white woman dissolve. Um, that we are unable to face the inherent racism that our kids are also picking up in the atmosphere, right? They're not going to be the first generation not to. Um, oh, and man. so that is absolutely a place where you can see whiteness at work. Um, mm -hmm. To not only absolve her or her child or her family of any potential shred of racism, but then to place the burden of reconciliation on the family of color who then has to just deal with our emotions over it, right? We've just recentered it. That's my point.
from here that's right here okay so that's another place um when we women have been called out on microaggressions um like here's an example because it happens so much that i just want to like melt into the ground Mm. like when a black woman says can you please stop touching my hair like without asking me can you just stop doing that and we're like well how dare you like i'm not i'm just as if we have a right to just touch somebody's body because it's interesting to us, right? I mean, how many yes, times you right. your hair? That's right. So okay, so I'm in the I'm in the supermarket. I'm in the supermarket aisle, and my hair, you know, when I have it out, it can be out, right? Like you know, and so yes. so I'm in the supermarket that, and this white woman reaches up and touches my hair, and I turn around like, you know, what is that? What is that? And the thing is, this happens all of the time all of the time. Now I understand. I do. I get it. You know, black women's hair is amazing. I mean, we have amazing hair. We really right. do. I hair is so amazing that back down in Louisiana and New Orleans, you know, back in the day, back in, in actually in the antebellum period, um, and maybe even the colonial period, but I think it was antebellum, the, the black women would put jewels in their hair. They would put stuff in their hair and like, it would just be, can you imagine? It's majestic. And so they outlawed the showing of black women's hair. They actually said, you have to wrap it. You have to wrap it so that it's not oh, seen. So then I've never heard that. Real. That is for real. Mm. That, that's the level of subjugation. So, mm. so, so now when we do show our hair, now it's like, ooh, like that's some. But the thing is, is that our bodies are our bodies. They're not your mm. bodies. They're not. That's right. You don't have the right to cross this boundary without asking. That's right. So white women. Just don't do that. Just don't do that. Just don't do it ever again, as long as you live. Never. Um, or when we're called out on any microaggression. Look, it is it is a courageous moment for a lot of Black men and women to say to a white person, this thing that you just said, the way in which you said it, that hurt me. That he, he, Here's how I received that. Here is how that is received in my lived experience. And again, here is where we immediately center our feelings you know, I'm not, you know, I didn't mean that you, you, I'm not right. I'm not racist. I, I didn't, we immediately center our defensiveness rather than imagine this as a possibility. Oh, oh my God. I am so sorry. Please accept my apology. I will never do that again. Mm -hmm. Thank you for telling me. Mm -hmm. I hear you and I will do better. How about that for a response? Mm -hmm. Just that no, but no, but you know, I'm a good person. No, but you know, I'm not a racist. None. Just Mm -hmm. Thank you for telling me that. I absolutely received. Please, here's my apology. I will never do that again. Amazing. That is a different this, response. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> into this, right? So can I can I just say that that's not that's not that is not unique to white women or white men or white people. The reality is we live in an incredibly diverse right. society. This is what makes America America, is mm. that we literally have everyone in the world here. We can't know about everybody. We can't yes. know. We can't know when we're we're going to offend somebody. Right. So we should actually take the position, all of us, that we don't know and mm-hmm. that we are going to say things that offend. Just the other day, I actually said something that offended somebody else. Mm-hmm. And immediately, because because I, I know that, yeah. I mean, I, I know I don't know everything. I just said, you know what? Please forgive me. Let's, let's, can you, can you, um, point me in a direction of, or I'll Google it. Um, 
how can I learn more about this so that right. I don't make this, this mistake ever again? And mm. I was fascinated. He told me something or she told me something about the word that I had used, the history of it. And I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. I will totally. never use that word again. And That's I went so to good, Lisa. all my platforms, you know? So yeah, yes. it's, not, it's not all that. It's just, it's just humility. It's humility and it's human. So yeah. this is just a good way, a good rule of operation as human people with other human people. Um, that when someone tells us that something we said or did hurt them or caused them harm, that we are, we, we believe them. We don't think they're making it up because they like, when they want to fight or they're interested in a confrontation, but that they're telling us something tender and true. And we say, message received. I am sorry. And I will, I will do better. I want to mention one other place that I think white people are doubly conditioned um, to use our tears to resist repentance and acknowledgement and confession. And that is inside our churches. Oh. When our brothers and sisters of color point out our, our white structures, our white preferences, our white leadership, um, even our white theology, but that's a whole can of worms that we don't have time for today. Um, but when they do Come on over to freedom road, we have that conversation. Totally. All Lisa's your leader. You've got her right here. That is where you go. Seriously. But our first instinct there is to layer it. So not only is our whiteness innocent, but so is our faith. Our mm -hmm. faith surely has to be free um, of guilt or shame here, right? And so we do a one-two punch there because we're doing God's work. And so I deeply urge my friends listening and watching to imagine that our Black brothers and sisters have something very salient to say about the white church in, in America. I mean, are we serious right now? The white church has been complicit in white supremacy since the very beginning. It is a, it has been a reliable partner. And so um, it is way past time that we admit our, our guilt as we put our fingers on racism and white supremacy and used our Bible to support it. Um, and so that is another place where we just want to default to our presumed innocence, where really what is required is our repentance. Can I just say, just to add to that, because we have a little bit of time here. I mean, I think the thing is, is that speaking of the white church, and, and actually there is a whole webinar series that you can take um, through Freedom Road Institute on decolonizing the Bible. How to decolonize the Bible? That's the that's the heart of it. The heart of it, it is, is the reality that the white the Western Church has lifted brown physically brown Jesus politically black Jesus out of his context, yes, <laughs> and, and then like dropped him into empire as if yeah. he was a king of of a, of a Western empire, right. you know, complete with purple robes, crown, you know, everything, and yet this mm -hmm. was a a physically brown politically black man uh, who was literally colonized by white empire. Mm. So he was killed by white empire. When you understand that, and when you understand all of his people and every writer of every single book in the entire Bible was physically brown and politically black, they were, every last one of them were either colonized or in, in danger of being colonized, including right. David and Solomon. Right. Yes, they were kings, but they were kings of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked, That's right? right. So, so they were not kings of an empire. 
um, but they kept getting colonized by empires. So, so mm. when we, the white we, when the white church um, positions itself, centers itself as the authority of theology, the authority, the authority of what the Bible actually says, do you understand mm. how crazy that is? Like you understand that would that would literally literally be like um, the white church claiming authority over the autobiography of Malcolm X, right? To, That's to a great example that, to interpret that. It's and, that absurd, and, and not just to interpret, but but to enforce yeah. the interpretation yeah. around the world. That's right. It is that absurd. That's right. I know. I. Thank you so much for your incredible teaching and leadership on this. Um, there's so much to unravel there for the majority of white Christians in America. Um, I 100% yes. grew up under the pictures of white Jesus holding a lamb. Yes. 100%. And he was fine. Why was Jesus so good looking in his white skin? Oh um, it was very confusing. All the Jesuses in Hollywood are also incredibly um, white and good looking. It's a very weird rendition of the actual Jesus. But he, and he yeah, I, swear, I swear to God, Jesus, well, I swear to God, thank you, Jesus, um, that, that Jesus really did look more like Malcolm X. He really did. Right. And, and he was fine, as we say in our neighborhood. <laughs> fine, fine. You know what I mean? He's fine. <laughs> wow. I'm talking about I, Jesus. I don't know what's happened, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, but it's okay. It's okay. We're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. Bringing it back. I, I think maybe here's what I want to say before you give us some other really incredible action steps. Yeah. Um, to my, to the community that are white women listening to me right now. Um, it, it is our, this is our work. This is white work. Um, mm. I, I say, I want to say this really gently because I see this a lot right now. Um, we are in such a moment of national reckoning yeah. and we feel it. The temperature is high and I'm watching white women who maybe have been historically silent mm -hmm. on this, try to find a foothold into this con try what start the, just start the engine here on anti-racist mm -hmm. work. But I think what a lot of white women do, I, and I believe this is well-intentioned, I'm gonna go ahead and give benefit of the doubt here. But what they do is they turn to communities of color and they say, teach me, teach me what to do. And so just like that to a community that is so traumatized and tired, so tired, we then say, again, with the helplessness, can you also both explain and defend um, lingering racism in our culture to um, a white community that it should be glaringly obvious to. Like that is a learned helplessness too. Do you have Google? Google it. At this point, there are so many comprehensive lists of anti-racist resources to learn from, to listen to, to watch, to read. There never even needs to be another one made for the rest of our lives. There are so many out there. That's really true. I, you know, and honestly, over the last week, I'm so, I am actually very grateful. I'm grateful for the people who have said, you know what, let me follow this voice. They've followed me. They've followed a lot of my friends. And, 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 you know, and honestly, all you need to do is go online right now and is go yep. on any social media platform and you it's will everywhere. see memes of people, you know, stories and, and posts with all the lists, the list of all the people, the people of color who are teaching these things, yep. who are teaching about this. And that's good. I love that. 
And yes. I, I'm, I'm honored that you would come and that you would, you would sit at our feet and listen. But the problem is when it's demanded and when it's, when it's, when it's thought to be teach me on demand. In other words, right. you know what I mean? Like I have, I, I don't know this now. You have to explain it when you That's come right. to the comment section, right? And you're like, now you have to, you, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have yes. to explain this to me right now. No, Google it. Google it. Can you read? Like, can you read? Like the onus. There's a million movies now too. Sorry. It's too easy. It's too easy. This is white work. And we need to stop asking communities of color to do the heavy lifting of our education. That is so lazy. And I, I think, Hmm. again, I'm going to give benefit of the doubt, which I think the, the intended posture here is I'm deferring to your right. leadership and your experience. I think yeah. that's the point, which is I am not going to put, I'm going to be under your leadership. There's a place that is the right posture, mm-hmm. but the difference is I'm going to listen and learn from you versus teach me now. Yes. Uh, right, like, you teach me now. Well, maybe we just sit quietly and listen. Cause it's already out there. I mean, if our eyes and ears have not told us already that white supremacy is alive and well and reigns supreme in this world, we're just not paying attention. Mm-hmm. And so this is white work. It belongs on our plates. This is ours yeah. to do. And specifically, it is ours to renounce this low-hanging fruit tactic of using our tears and our helplessness and our victimhood against Black bodies, Black experiences, and Black lives. We have to stop. We just have mm-hmm. to stop. There is, we don't step this down. We don't gradually walk it back. We stop it. Once and for once and for all, and so it just may we recognize in the moment when we are tempted to let those tears just burn in profession of our own innocence and integrity and virtue, and rather let's be in the moment like grown-ups who are anti-racists in partnership with our brothers and sisters of color who are near and dear to us, to the heart of God, to this world, to the lived experience of humanity. And so it's just enough. That's just, that is it. We, we renounce it and we lay it down. Yeah. And I wonder, um, I wonder, Lisa, I just would love for you to, I would love to hear from you as we go. I would love for the final words to be yours. I would love for you to, um, kind of commission us, if you will. All right. So here's, here's what I think. Looking at all of this, going back, Emmett Till, slave patrols, the use of the tears in order to gain the power because, because you are not fully empowered. So yeah, there's a reason, but at the same time, it's freaking evil, right? Yeah, that's right. The reality that, 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 that pointing of the finger, um, that, that pushing off of responsibility that um, that that failure to take responsibility yeah. for your own actions that has cost us. That has cost. It has. It's cost us. It's cost jobs. It's cost um, spiritual fulfillment for people who can't go to church mm. because they would if they weren't going to experience that. Mm. It has cost. Uh, family members who have been lynched. Right. It's cost land because of the, the great migration largely happened because of the stream of lynchings that happened largely at the pointing finger of a white woman. That's right. It has cost us. Mm. So the question is, 
how do we repair what race broke in the world, really? Mm. And I think that, I think reparations mm. is necessary. I think mm. we got we to gotta speak the word. Mm. And I think it starts right now. I don't think we need any kind of a national declaration of reparation. Mm. I think it starts with you. And I think it starts with you yeah. right now. Good. Because what all reparation is, is repair. It means it, it is the work of repentance. It is the right. work to repent. Now, look, when I was in, in a youth group, <laughs> that's where I got taught what repentance is. All repentance is, is when you see that you're walking one direction and it's the wrong direction, what do you do? You turn and walk 180 degrees in the other direction. That's right. So 180 degrees from the pointing finger, mm -hmm. which actually causes all of that loss, is to point that finger back at yourself mm. and to pay reparation to actually pay into the solution, to be a part of the solution, as opposed to sitting on the sideline, being frozen and not knowing what to do. No, it is right. to unleash yourself and engage. Mm. That's what it looks like. And so I'm gonna give you a few ways that you can do that today, that you can start today, okay? We ready? Yep. Okay, so there are several movements on the ground in all of those 75 cities that have mm -hmm. had the uprising um, today, we obviously know that this is a national, um, a national problem. It's not just located in Minneapolis, though that was the flashpoint, right? It was right. one of the big flashpoints. And we also need to say the names of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery mm -hmm. as well, and the so many that have come before them, that it's mm -hmm. not even just what happened this week. The week before oh, that, yeah. we had... Ahmad Arbor and Brianna yeah. Taylor. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the, the week before that, there was someone else. And there have been others that have remained unnamed, even right. in the week since George Floyd. So, mm -hmm. so in light of that, there are organizations, there are movements that are on the ground right now that are being led by people of African descent. And let me tell you, I think part of the, the most critical part of the repentance for, for white women and men um, is, to, is to acknowledge the fact that what white supremacy says to the world is that only people of European descent were created to rule. Right. We're created to exercise dominion on this land. We're created to exercise agency and make decisions that impact the world. And so it is you, it is white people who should be the people who are leading into the solutions. Mm -hmm. But I'm here to tell you that's not true. That's not true. Biblically, it's not true. It's not mm -hmm. true. Sociologically, mentally, any way you cut it, it's not true. We are all human. All of us are human. And scripturally, we know on the very first page of the Bible that what it means to be human is to be made in the image of God. And what it means to be made in the image of God is to be called with the divine call and capacity to exercise dominion in the world, to make decisions that impact the world, to exercise agency. So your first act of repentance is to trust the leadership of people of African descent on this land. In these cities, you have to trust that we know what the problem is and we know the solutions. All that we lack is the public will mm -hmm. to do it. And that's where you come in. Mm -hmm. You are the public. You can bring the will. 
And so I want to call on you to follow the lead. Mm. Follow the lead of the movements of people of African descent in this United States and other subjugated peoples of color, Native Americans, um, Asian Americans, Mm -hmm. Latinx community, Mm -hmm. people who are um, what we call Middle Eastern, but Mm -hmm. are are culturally Arabic, Persian, Pakistani, Mm -hmm. Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, who have long roots in America, but have been perpetually foreignized as the foreigner. Mm. What would it look like for you, people of European descent, to recognize that you are not white, you are of European descent, just Mm. like I am of African descent. And Mm. what would it look like for you to step down off the scaffolding of whiteness and join the community of, of creation, join the community of humanity in a circle? in a circle. And in this moment, the people we need to be lead, who we need to lead us are people of African descent because we're the ones who've experienced the brunt of the problem. We know it like the back of our hands. That's right. So I want you right now, I want you, at, not right now, right after we get off of this, I want you to go on NAACP's website and also the Legal Defense Fund. Those are two different two different organizations. The NAACP is doing great work in Minneapolis. I want yeah. you to give. I want you to give your money to the NAACP oh, today. Um, I want you to go to the Black Lives Matter, um, Black Lives Matter um, National. The, you're able to give to any Black Lives Matter chapter through their national network. Um, and they are also doing amazing organizing in every city. And I also want you on that, on their page. And this also goes for the Movement for Black Lives, which is actually a compilation of hundreds of different organizations. Um, I want you to go to their page and I want you to look for their vision because they actually do outline the vision. What are they working toward? And I think you'll find that that's a beautiful vision. What the vision really is, is the vision of shalom, the vision of peace, the vision of all of us being equal. Next, I want you to go to the Color of Change website. Um, The Color of Change is doing amazing work again. Um, A a Color of Change is uh, an advocacy group that works on a national level, working policies that will bring the freedom of Black people and all people. Um, And then finally, I want you to go to the Poor People's Campaign. The Poor People's Campaign has an incredible um, uh, initiative that is rising up and it's going to be taking place June 20th. It's an online national protest. And know this, that that there are more white poor people in America than there are black poor people in America. Okay, there are more Mm -hmm. white people in America than there are black people, poor people. It's just that the percentages the ratios within our community are skewed, yeah. right? So, so together, if we address the issues of poverty, we, you know, how Reagan used to say, you know, the trickle down theory is that, mm. you know, if it trickles down, all boats will rise. That never did work. It doesn't That's work. Right. But if we raise the poor, then we all will be raised. Good. We will all, our society, our economy will be raised. Mm. Um, and then finally, I said, and finally, this is not finally, there's like three more, sorry. <laughs> EJI, Equal Justice Initiative. Yeah. So Equal Justice Initiative, right? Like, um, actually, Jen, you were yeah. there with us. So you and I, that's when we met. 
we met there. Yeah. So they, they have been, they built, they spent years building this incredible museum and monuments, but their work, their everyday work is actually to free black men and women and children who have been rounded up. Um, and who have experienced police brutality and also the brutality of our entire justice system right. that, that levels um, inequitable sentencing and inequitable um, experiences in the courtroom um, on, on poor black bodies. Right. And so go, because they teach the history and they also tell you what you can do next. Mm -hmm. that's, that's your next pilgrimage. If you haven't been there, you got to go. Brian Stevenson is a hero in our time. His book, Just Mercy, is a wonderful place to start if you're looking for like next thing to do. Yes, today. You can watch the movie. Watch yeah, that's the right. movie on Netflix and then buy the book and read the book if you haven't yes. already read it. And be the bridge. If you are looking for a place, and I hope you are, where you can personally be led as a white person, this place exists that's for right. you. If you want to move forward in your anti-racism, if you want to become more aware, as Jen has become more aware and is becoming more aware, then I, I want you to go to bethebridge.com. And I want you to follow Latasha Mart Morrison online on all the social networks. Just look for Latasha Morrison because Homegirl and Be The Bridge, they are doing the work as yeah. literally few, few entities in the United yeah. States are doing right now. So you really do have to go to her. And of course, Freedom Road. So yep. if your organization, if you have an organization that wants to become an anti-racist organization, um, if you have, if you yourself um, are on the journey of decolonizing your thinking, then I want you to, to go to freedomroad.us and I want you to log on to our institute and the institute will give you the opportunity to take webinars, become part of growth communities, get coached in how to be an anti-racist, basically, yep. how to move forward in all of this. <clears throat> and also, of course, if you're an organization, we can consult. That's what we do. So friends, we are at a crossroads in our nation. We have a choice. So it feels so despairing, doesn't it, when we're watching the news at night and all you see is burning buildings and you see the chants and you see police cars ram people. And when you see trucks go through crowds, you just think we are, we are losing our minds. We have lost it. We, our nation is unraveling. But friends, let me share something with you. A thought I had last night in closing. Our nation may be unraveling. That's not such a bad thing. Right. It gives us the opportunity to build it right. Up to this point, we have never really examined the ways that our systems and structures have been created to do what they are doing right now. The policing system is bearing the fruit that the seed produces right. and the seed is racial violence. Mm. So in order for us to have a new result, we need a new seed. So this is our opportunity. It's our opportunity to dream and build a new society. Mm. <gasps> yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. We are here. We are here. We're in that moment. Take it. Move. 
move forward. We can get there together. Your freedom is mixed up in my freedom. And my freedom, Jen, is mixed up in yours. Amen. Amen. That's a word. Thank you for being such a profoundly gifted leader for this moment. Lisa, thank you for your faithful witness, for your ferocity. You've had your hand at this for a long time. And you have stayed the course with profound anointing. And so for all the ways in which you have taught me and led me and corrected me and challenged me and been a friend to me, I'll be grateful for the rest of my life. Um, thank you for your, thank you for your investment today in our communities, because what you said mattered so, so, so much. And so um, I remain your friend and your sister and your partner. And thank you for this moment. Thank you for today. Just, I love you dearly. Um, everybody, if you haven't already, obviously followed Lisa on all platforms and in all spaces, get your life right. Like just, I don't know what else we have to do to like tell you what to do. Okay. Look, it's even scrolling because remember we got fancy tech help today. Isn't that awesome? Um, So yes. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for understanding that we need some help. Okay, sis. I love you. I love you too. And I want to say thank you also for doing your homework. Mm. Mm. Thank you for doing your homework. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Community. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you.